Hey, this is Kaz, and you are listening to Two Broke Wash Snobs, the only wash podcast that knows what you sow must die before it bears fruit. You have made it all the way to episode 179. How the fuck is everyone doing? Uh, again, I am recording this week's show uh, alone. Uh, my better half from Broke Watch Snobbery, Michael, could not join me. He had to duck out last minute. However, we are still going to have a shit ton of fun. I had a lot of fun last week, 178. Um, I had discussed... Uh, you know, the, like the five Soviet watches that everyone has to know about. Uh, for those who are unaware, if this is your first time listening to Two Book Watch Snobs, um, uh, I have a particular affinity for uh, Soviet urology, Soviet watches, so that's from approximately 1917 when the SU began to uh, 1991-1992, so it's, like, it's about 75 years. Uh, watches made in the Soviet Union during that time. That was kind of my nation, so I thought it would be fun last week recording alone to do an entire episode uh, basically just on that, on, on, on SU watches and just talking about, you know, history and, and flagging five watches that I thought were a lot of fun. Um, Michael and I had planned this week, episode 179, with the idea that we would be recording together. However, uh, unfortunately, in the last minute, he could not join me. So this is going to be an interesting episode. Um, <laughs> we decided that it would be a lot of fun to return to our true bread and butter, like the the... The facet of doing the Two Book Watch Knobs podcast, which we've been doing for many years now, that really helped kind of um, helped us kind of create our own little personal cathartic outlet. So I'm returning to one of our most beloved reoccurring series. That's right, you guessed it. I mean, if you did guess it, I don't fucking know. This could just be me talking to myself. It doesn't really matter. Um, episode 179. Affordable vintage watches. We have done many of these episodes before. In particular, this week's episode 179 Affordable Vintage Watches Part 9 Pilot Watches, which is actually an interesting one. So, just as a, a refresher, if for some reason the name of the segment isn't clear enough as it is, um, the Affordable Vintage Watch series that we do here at Two Rope Watch Knobs, uh, at, least, at least on the podcast, it's centered around um, watches within certain niches sometimes that we feel are affordable in the vintage watch market. One of the more difficult hurdles for folks to <clears throat> get into vintage watches is usually price. A lot of the times, especially when you're talking about like the traditional vintage watches that people like talk about and throw around, you know, they, they tend to get um, pretty expensive. Michael and I like discussing the... T- I see Michael and I like he's fucking... It's just, it's just my dumbass. It's just it's me and my cat. My cat's here. Let me, let me, let me ring her collar for you guys. Um, I don't like the idea of vintage watches being uh, inaccessible or difficult or full of all these impediments. I like the idea of vintage watches being what I think all facets of... Um, Orology enthusiasm should be vintage watches should be uh, fun. They should be fun. You know, every facet of orology is an expression of just someone's individuality. And some people, so, so interestingly, some people are into vintage watches and some people aren't into vintage watches. Funnily enough, Michael does, is not that into vintage watches, which is really funny why we, we've done so many of these series. I love vintage watches because obviously, like I was saying in the beginning of the show, uh, the crux of what a lot of my attention is focused on, you know, with my collecting habits is, or at least my research habits, it's uh, it's Soviet Union uh, watches. So by definition, every Soviet Union watch <laughs> is a vintage watch. Um, 
so uh, what was I saying here? So b- basically, we thought it'd be fun to to jump back on and do another one of these series and focus on pilot watches, which is a weird thing to try and focus on because I think folks' predilection generally in the watch family within you know horology enthusiasm is that when I say pilot watch, more often than not, their mind's eye is gonna bring to them a fucking uh, like a flieger, like a I don't know what I don't know anything about fleegers. I mean, I know a little, but not as much as I should. But so basically, that 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 typical um, you know big no, big numeral, uh, big hand, super legible dial. Uh, traditional fleeger companies are brands like Stova. Um, is that beeping? You guys hear the beeping? Oh God! Whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, there are other ones out there, but basically, there it is again. Oh, it's someone. This is someone on a scooter outside beeping their horn dicks all right let me put my headphone back on <sighs> so when i say pilot watch most folks are going to picture like fleeger style watches however that's not necessarily the, the definition that i would subscribe to in regards to um a pilot watch what i'm going to do next is just kind of give you a loose definition of how i define a pilot watch and then there's some fun housekeeping items to get to and there's obviously as always in the two book watch house podcast there's tradition traditions we have to uh, observe but basically i would define a pilot's watch not necessarily um by its style or by its function i would define a pilot watch historically as whatever the fuck a pilot wore um which is kind of a almost like a like a pitfall definition because what if uh, what if for some reason, in the '90s, pilots wore, uh, you know, Snoopy, Red Baron, Timex watches. I don't, I don't know if Timex was doing all those uh, Charles Schultz penis pieces back then, but I mean, let's just say in this fictitious scenario that they are, um, would those be pilots' watches? In my sense, the definition, yes, because I think in certain scenarios, especially ones like I'll discuss here, um, in regards to if a pilot has to fly in war. Or if a pilot has to uh, make do with their equipment in regards to their specific situation. Because not everyone's flying or not everyone's going to be a pilot in perfect conditions and everything like that. So for me, a pilot's watch is just really whatever whatever there's historical evidence for what pilots wore uh, while flying. So that's how I define a pilot's watch. We'll get more into that soon. But first, <laughs> but first we have to honor tradition uh i am i it's time to do a wrist check would you guys like to do a wrist check with me so last week when i did a wrist check michael wasn't here obviously my better half and broke watch knobbery but i did a wrist check with everyone at home so what i'll do is uh uh let's start the wrist check uh i'll 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 give you guys three potatoes three potato to tell me what you're wearing so here we go one potato two potato three potato wow cool wrist check guys that's super awesome that you're wearing uh, insert the name of your of your whatever the fuck you're yelling whatever the fuck you're wearing just yell it into your radio or whatever you're listening to us on ham ham radio <laughs> michael and i should just transition the show to like full analog like punch cards like oh you can subscribe to the two book watch house podcast every month we'll send you a punch card with our uh, or like a sonogram like a like a the wheel with like the wax <laughs> dude we're going retro with the show Oh, me, myself, and I. Uh, for this week's... Sorry. 
Uh, for this week's show, um, I, I, last week I wore uh, I wore my Slava medical because it was a Soviet watch show, and I was gonna you know, I thought it'd be fun to wear a Soviet watch. Um, this week, uh, and I do apologize, will be Soviet watch dominated again, just because that's just my collecting niche, and I'm here alone. But for my wrist check, I am not wearing a Soviet watch. I'm actually wearing my Orient Star Diver. Uh, relatively new. These were oh yeah, these first were released uh, uh, late 2019. I ended up buying this one in particular uh, in December of 2019. I always forget the reference number on this one. It's one of the RKs and the new ones. I actually wrote it down for something unrelated to this. Let me see if I can dig that up real quick. Oh. Lots of words. Here we go. Is the Orient Star RK AT zero one zero six E. The Orient Star line is interesting in that there's a lot of misconception and misunderstanding in regards to a Orient as a company, Orient Watch Co. as a company, and b kind of what the hell Orient Star is. And a lot of that misinformation comes from a lack of someone owning the narrative at least here i'm you know i'm speaking from um, an american perspective i'm here in the united states born and raised uh here in the united states there's not really an appropriate uh owner of the orient watch narrative we have orient usa which is not in my opinion the best representation of the orient brand that we could have here in the united states if you've listened to the show before you've heard me expressed by disdain and ire for uh, Orient USA. I think they represent the brand in a way that doesn't do the orological chops and the history and the breadth of selection that the brand has justice. Um, the One of the main misconceptions about Orient, uh, and I need to like, I would love to just address this specifically in episode, there's the idea that people think Seiko, like Seiko watches, owns uh, Orients and that all Orients are like shitty Seikos kind of in the if there are any other like guitar gearheads here or whatever even just folks that have guitar knowledge kind of in the same way people would look at Epiphones and Gibsons oh Epiphones are just like affordable student versions of of you know Gibsons you know affordable you know quote unquote something like that so I can't afford uh, uh, like a Gibson SG, so I'll just buy like an Epiphone SG or an LP or whatever. I don't even know if they make an Epiphone SG. It doesn't matter. But that's basically uh, the idea. That is a with, – with regards to Seiko and Orient, that is false. Orient is not owned by Seiko. Seiko watches has nothing to do with Orient watches. What gets people confused is two things. The mechanical movements that were used in Orient watches for, God, 50 years, 40 or 50 years, were based off of patents that were licensed by Orient from Seiko for the 7, oh God, 7002 or the 7006. So basically every mechanical Orient movement from 19, from like the, like, I don't know the exact year, from the 70s to about, oh, 2017, 2016. Uh, basically, every mechanical movement that Orient was working on was based off the foundation of their licensing uh, rights from the 7006 or the 7002. I can't remember. The Seiko, that Seiko movement. So if you own a Gen 1 Mako, it has a caliber 469 in there. That 469 is based off of excuse me, a 7002 that um, 
Orient license from Seiko in the 70s, I think. Uh, and if you have a Gen 1 Mako, if you see that it, you have to change the date or the day, I forget, with the button, they had to module, they had to add a module for that button because the 7002 or the 7006, whatever the fuck it is, doesn't have a quick set option, you know, for that. So uh, if you ever, if you're curious why a lot of Mako or a lot of Mako, a lot of Orients have that button at two o'clock to change the day, that's why because that thing wasn't integrated um, into the normal kind of gear works of the actual uh, of the original 7002 or 7006. I'm sorry, I can't remember. I didn't prepare very well for this episode because I didn't think I'd be doing it alone. Um, so that's the the, so the, fir the first misconce misconception is that Seiko owns Orient, and people think that's the case because the Orient movements are based off of Seiko. They license that stuff. It's not like Seiko said, "Oh, you're our brother or sister brand. Here's the movements." So you know, there's that. The second thing I think leads people to believe why Orient is owned by Seiko is because Orient, as of oh man, 2017 or maybe even last, maybe 2018. Uh, Orient is owned now by Seiko Epson. Okay, this is where, this is where I need to explain <laughs> more stuff. Um, Seiko Epson for a while had some stake in Orient, but then in 2000, God, 2007, 2018, I can't remember, Seiko Epson fully acquired Orient. So Seiko Epson owns Orient. However, Seiko Epson has nothing to do with Seiko watch, modern Seiko watches, or you know the Seiko watch company, or whatever the fuck it's called now. Um, Seiko or Epson, Seiko Epson or Epson Seiko. I'll just say Epson. It's just easier. Epson. So when I say Epson, yes, I mean like Epson, Epson, like printers and uh, calculators and digital goods and things like that. Epson has a history of having some factories that's helped Seiko back in the day. Uh, work on the first, like, Quartz, uh, Astron, and all that shit like that. But that was years ago. Uh, the companies have all been split. The companies have all been divided. And basically what's happening now is that there exists what's called the Seiko Holding Group, or Seiko Group, I forget what it's called. Within the Seiko Holding Group, there's three different arms. One of them is Seiko Epson. One of them is, like, Seiko Instruments. And the other one is related to Seiko Watches. I think Seiko Instruments and Seiko Watches combined, and Seiko Epson still doing its own thing. Um, before you send me, send me angry emails, I'm sorry if I'm mixing up companies, at least in the non-Seiko Epson part. I only know about Seiko Epson just because of Orient. So, but that's basically the idea. It's a holding company called Seiko Holding Group or Seiko Group, and there's three different sort of chains in there. Two of them combined. The two that combined are related to Seiko watches. Epson, Seiko Epson, which has not combined with anything, has nothing to do with Seiko uh, Seiko watches. The confusion is people say, oh, well, it's a holding group. Of course, it's something to do with, you know, um, of course, all these companies have something to do with, uh, with each other. Not necessarily. Companies in a holding group sometimes have nothing to do with other companies that may be in that group. Um, let me see here. Let me pull up an example of a holding company. That has many companies. Okay, so here we go. Uh, 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 a holding company that most people are for probably familiar with: Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett owned, you know, Berkshire Hathaway. That's a holding company that has many different companies within it. In the same way that the Seiko Group is a holding company with many with many uh, companies, you know, within it. Uh, for an example, Berkshire Hathaway um, has Geico. I'm looking at the fucking Wikipedia article. Has Geico, Dairy Queen, and Duracell batteries. 
<laughs> None of those companies have anything to do with each other, nor do I want them to do anything with, 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 with I don't want, like, battery acid in my fucking blizzards oh, from Dairy Queen. All right? Oreo blizzard. Hashtag dat Oreo blizzard life. And that's the same sort of relationship that's happening here with the Seiko holding group owning Seiko Epson and Seiko Epson owning Orient. This is way more time than I wanted to spend talking about Orient. So yeah, I apologize now, but this is what happens when Michael's not here to move me off of a subject. But I just need to clear that up. Seiko Watches does not own Orient. Orient has nothing to do with Seiko Watches. Orient is owned by Seiko Epson. Seiko Epson does have a history of helping Seiko, um, you know, with uh, like early like digital watches and things like that. But that was like 30 years ago or whatever. Um, and since then, all the companies have been split up and everything like that. So, you know... If you buy an Orient Mako 2, do not think you're getting a shitty version of a Seiko Diver. If anything, I'll argue if you buy an Orient Mako 2, you're getting a better affordable diver than those new Seiko 5s they're putting out. That's right. I fucking said it. All right? Because the Orient Mako 2 um, hacks, hand winds. I'm pretty sure it's a sapphire crystal. It has the new caliber movements that they're putting out, which my Orient Star has as well, um, ever since 2007, 2018, Orient's been phasing out those 469 movements that were based on that old Seiko license I told you guys about, and they're phasing them out as part of their new F6, F7 caliber. Uh, my watch has the F6 uh, fucking something or other. I don't know the movement here. Actually, I think I wrote it down on the same piece of paper for an unrelated thing. It's the F6 uh, R42 uh, that I have in this uh, Orient Star Diver. So, um... Yeah, that was one more time that I wanted to spend on Orient, but that doesn't really matter. But yeah, so if you if you if you have any uncertainties about that, still let me know. If I for some reason misrepresented the Seiko Holdings Group in regards to those two other companies that aren't Seiko Epson, I mean you can let me know. I'm gonna Google it afterwards and figure out if I was wrong or not. So you guys can just like save your 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 hate mail. I don't care about those other two groups in Seiko Holding Group. I just care about Seiko Epson because that's what relates to Orient, and Seiko Epson's still just doing it their their own thing. Um, actually really cool if you buy an Orient within if you've bought an Orient actually within the past year or so it actually says Epson on the back um, to me this is evidence that Epson as a group is trying so Epson putting Epson on the back of Orient watches and even just Epson buying Orient watches is a move that's very clear to me which indicates they're trying to become more of a recognizable force uh, within watches outside of the traditional like Japanese uh, watch offerings, you know, traditional Japanese watch offerings being the big three, you know, Orient, Seiko, and Citizen. I think Orient's trying, as Epson through Orient's trying to kind of make a, a, a more of a um, established presence. So that's we're gonna see a lot more uh, Orient Epson releases, uh, a lot of new dial colors, a lot of new reissues of some older models with these new caliber movements. Um, I really hope they reissue my old Orient Star. GMT, the WZ0071DJ in like new dial colors, because that would be cool, but but here. But yeah, that's what I'm wearing for the wrist check. I'm going to move on from that. I could talk about this all fucking day, and you guys don't want to hear me talking about Orient. I even struggled to think you guys wanted me to talk about Soviet watches all day. Hold on, I need to get a drink. But it doesn't matter, because you you have to listen to me. That's, that's, that's the contract. That's the social contract we've, we've, contract we've entered into. You're listening. I have to talk. 
I'm talking, you have to listen. Uh, but here, let's do this. Uh, that was the wrist check. Um, housekeeping items. Uh, again, you know, check out the website, twobrokewashknobs.com, and jump on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash twobrokewashknobs. Also, we're using the Amazon affiliate links still. I spent a lot of time talking about that last week because there was um, some confusion around that in regards to folks not sure if they should still support the show that way. So on and so forth. I will just reiterate, Michael and I have created Two Broke Watch Knobs to not be dependent on brand funding, which uh, is what a lot of other watch media outlets depend on. So brands will sponsor a podcast episode or brands will um, buy like a banner on a website. We have structured ourselves to make uh, to cover a little bit of our overhead from that. So, you know, we have this thing called In Their Own Words, which is like our branded way of having sponsored posts on the site. But it's a very small facet. We only really off- also offer it to people who, to micro brands, really, who we think are doing something cool. Uh, usually we don't offer that to people, which is why if you go to the website and look, there's only one. <laughs> and there might be another scene, but the majority of how Michael and I cover our overhead is um, by basically being crowdfunded. That's the only way I can say it. We're funded by you guys and gals that love, uh, for some reason, I don't know why you guys like the show. Uh, I'm also, I'm a younger sibling, so I assume everything I do is wrong. Um, but we are funded by you guys because you love the show so much. So that's through Patreon. That's through folks using our Amazon affiliate link. Um, sometimes people just, uh, will send us like, like direct contributions, which is always super cool. Um, but you know, no one should feel the need to do that. And I like it that way because we then like, I don't want to have a brand take out a banner on the website or whatever. And then the next month they release like the stupidest fucking watch ever. It's like, oh, this watch was made, uh, this watch was made from recycled plastic, recycled plastic from latex condoms. It's like, that's fucking stupid, man. Like, that's just like really dumb. Like, and, but, but in the interest of preserving our overhead, I would not feel comfortable taking their money the month before and then the next month saying XYZ brands fucking stupid, blah, blah, blah. That's really dumb. That's not sustainable. So Michael and I were like, you know what? Let's just... It's the harder path. It's the more difficult path. But let's just focus on being crowdfunded. Uh, we still have day jobs and all that stuff. This is, we, 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 do, we do TBWs full-time, but we don't get paid for TBWs full-time. So, um, And we've done that because we don't want our journalistic integrity, which is a weird thing to say, to be compromised. I've seen plenty of other websites and watch media outlets do episodes where it's like really clear that this is all just like faux ass sponsored content or like you know here's how you can tell if you're listening to something or if you're reading something and if you're unsure if it's sponsored or if a brand paid to have like presence or whatever here's how you can tell if it's fucking fake if it's like if a brand just paid a a watch media outlet to sell you know content to you guys which to you guys as the users it's uh, it's not fair you want to be entertained you want to have fun you want to hang out wristwatch bar talk you don't want to fucking who wants to listen to an hour fucking commercial that's basically what a sponsored episode is uh most of the times or what like a sponsored content like is on another website here's how you can tell if it's sponsored or if someone's trying to nefariously pull the wool over your eyes if everything in what you're listening to is reading if they're making everything sound awesome, I got something to tell you about reality, guys. Everything is not fucking awesome. Most things you'll encounter in life fucking suck. 
I would say about 95% of things on Connor in life are really fucking stupid. Um, and that's one of the things I love about Two Broke Watch Snobs, where if a watch brand does something stupid, we're going to fucking tell you guys, hey guys, XYZ brand does something stupid. This is fucking dumb. Um, Seiko's been on the receiving end of that for a, long, for, for a long time now, it seems like, at least the past year, especially in regards to a lot of the changes and the price, uh, price hikes and all that bullshit they're doing and everything like that. So... Um, yeah, here, again, I fucking did it. I talked about this more than I actually intended to. I even wrote on my fucking piece of paper here, don't spend too much time talking about this. But here we are. But I, I just wanted to illustrate to you guys, you know, how the show, quote-unquote, makes money, how we cover our overhead, um, how that really functions. The majority of our overhead also, it goes to just getting watches for us to review. It goes to us... Um, all of our software memberships, we have to have a bunch of software memberships for, like, audio processing and for excuse me, um, posting the show, and also all of our website overhead, twobookwatchnobs.com. I've worked a fuck ton on that site, getting it to rank as well as it can rank for all the different posts we put out there. All that shit's got overhead. It also goes to um, paying the TBWS you know, writing team. We have, a, we have a fucking incredible writing staff of folks who are super patient with me um, because sometimes it's just difficult to coordinate and we have other stuff going on. So uh, let me just give a huge shout out to all of our TV desk contributors right now. Huge shout out to uh, TV's contributors, uh, Greg Bedrosian. I'm just saying them in order that they're on the website here. Greg Bedrosian, Baird Brown, Mark Signorelli, Mike Razak. Razak? Razak? I'll say Razak. Jason Tricoli, Damon Bailey, uh, uh, Aggressive Timing Habits, and Henry Marganou, or Marganou. I always fucked that up. I'm sorry, dude. Um... That, that that's part of our overhead is to making sure that everyone is 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 compensated for just like the time that they put into the site and the other facet is sometimes we have to buy the watches we review which is fucking depressing if you think about it because other places um they'll usually just get the watch for free to review so here i'm moving on it doesn't matter the headline is <laughs> we're crowdfunded by you guys if you want to jump on that if you want to jump on that uh, hit our Patreon page, use our Amazon affiliate link, or if you have any other questions, you can reach out to me uh, at Insta- on Instagram at TubeRokeWashDoms, or you can email us tbws.contact at gmail.com, tbws.contact at gmail.com. Um, I don't think the crowdfunding thing is going to change anytime soon. I like it. It's the hard option, but you know it is what it is. Uh, let me see here. I have to cross things off because now this list is getting insane. Okay. You guys want to talk about affordable vintage watches? <laughs> oh, man. This is going to be interesting as only one person. So traditionally when Michael and I do, um, sometimes when Michael and I do segments that we would ju- classify as like list episodes where like uh, affordable vintage watches, you know, counts as a list episode, everything like that. So what we would do is like I would choose a few watches and Michael would choose a few watches and then we would take turns saying... Uh, you know, one watch, he'll say one watch, I'll say one watch, he'll say, and like, you know, sharing our, sharing our reasons um, for choosing those watches. This is going to be a little bit different. It's just going to be me talking, so sorry. But basically, affordable vintage watches, part nine, pilot watches. Let's go, let's kind of go back to my definition of a pilot's watch because I think it's, it's important to understand my definition of a pilot watch in regards to the choices that I have made here. All of my choices, sorry guys, are Soviet vintage uh, watches because that's just, majority of what occupies my brain within urology um a pilot watch to me is any watch which there's evidence for a pilot wearing you know while they while they flew 
I think a lot of people would struggle with that definition because it's kind of... I think people think the function... The watch has to be designed for the function first. It's not a pilot watch if it wasn't designed as a pilot watch. But the thing is, that kind of falls into the other weird pitfall of, okay, what the fuck does designing for a pilot watch mean? Is it super legible, big numerals, big hands, so you can easily see the time when you're in the cockpit, kind of like a lot of those vintage fleekers? Or is it kind of, um, you know, do you need like a slide rule bezel on there to like calculate? I don't fucking know. Fuel usage. Um, to me, I enjoy the definition more of a pilot watch is just whatever there's historical evidence for a pilot wearing. Um, because that, I feel like, is more true to form in regards to just the reality. Um, I know a lot of watch nerds love the idea of thinking like, oh yeah, this is the watch that like Marines wear because it says, you know, Marine, like US Marines wear this watch. And the reality is most of these people who are in these jobs, which have watches attached to them they're individuals and you can't really pigeonhole them into saying oh you're uh, you're a marine that means you you wore you wore this watch like no they might just wore whatever the fuck they wanted to wear you know whatever suited them best um so that's why i was kind of because originally i was going to do like a function idea but like oh it's a pilot watch because it's designed for a certain function but then as i started digging into it especially with my soviet watch topic it just didn't make sense. I'm just like, man, pilot watches seems to be where the fuck they happen to wear when they were flying, if there's at least, you know, historical evidence for it. So let's do this. I have three choices. Michael had two-ish choices, and he shared them with me. Um, I'm not going to lie. I don't know much about Michael's choices. So I'm just going to say my choices, and then afterwards, uh, I'll talk you guys through uh, the choices that. Well, I, I know a lot about one of Mike, what, Michael's half choice. So Michael had two and a half choices. The half choice I know a lot about. Um, but I want to talk you guys through my choices first. Uh, let's see. How can I do this? So the idea of the pilot watch in the Soviet Union was interesting. So, okay, so if you guys didn't listen to last week's episode, a bit of a refresher. Uh, Soviet Union started October 1917. However, during the periods from 1917 to 1930, the watches that were being made were from leftover parts from other European companies that were forced to leave after the Red Revolution. So 1917 happened. Um, all of these essentially, quote-unquote, non-Soviet companies, and usually with small you know, workshops, small boutiques. Uh, Moser, Moser & Co. is a traditional example of a smaller boutique that was kicked out of St. Petersburg. Um, they were kicked out, but they left all of their like parts and machinery and things like that. So for about 13 years, um, the Soviets, the newly dubbed Soviets, were using those parts to make uh, you know, the watches they needed. As we started getting closer through the 20s, the realization kind of dawned on them like, hey, this is not sustainable. We have to figure out how to make our own uh, watches because uh, that was also one of the tenets back then in the idealistic period of the Soviet Union. We have to make our own stuff. We have to not rely on someone else to make our stuff for us uh, because before the revolution, Russia was still agricultural almost, which is fucking insane considering the rest of the country the rest of Europe 
and really a lot of the quote unquote civilized world which is a phrase I fucking hate but I can't think of anything different on, this, on the fly right now most of the world was just industrialized but you know, Russia was still agricultural and not even that great at being agricultural <laughs> they had famines and shit um, and so you know the idea of having to rely on other nations industrialized infrastructures to give them what they wanted after the Soviet Union was erected that idea went out the window Soviet Union, we have to make uh, our own stuff. Um, so 13 years, 1917 to 1930, they're just using you know leftover parts from some of these small watch operations. However, uh, in the... Oh, God, I should have written this down. Whatever, it doesn't matter. In, the, in 1929 or 1930, basically, um, the first Moscow watch factory was built on the basis of patents and materials and knowledge that Moscow, that the Soviet Union had purchased from uh, Duberhampton, which was a pocket watchmaking company in Canton, Ohio, um, which sounds ridiculous, but I don't want to spend too much time talking about that because I spent a lot of time talking about Duberhampton, Ohio, uh, Duberhampton in Canton, Ohio uh, last time. But basically, Duberhampton was going into bankruptcy. They needed to sell everything just to, I guess, break even. I don't know how fucking bankruptcy works. Um, and the reason the Soviets went to America to get the went to the United States to get the patents and the machinery that they needed to make watches on an industrial scale, because remember, before the Soviet Union, the watchmaking capabilities that were there were these small little European boutique shops that couldn't were only making watches for. Uh, nobility and uh, uh, aristocracy, the, the aristocratic class. There it is. Sorry, my high school stutter was coming back. Um, the infrastructure that was in place before that the Soviets inherited from these small workshops could not give every union, every Soviet Union citizen, a watch because that was basically the idea. Man, woman, child. Uh, I guess in some cases, dogs. If your name is Leica, <clears throat> I don't think Leica wore a watch. <laughs> poor, poor thing. Uh, every man, woman, child gets a watch, uh, but there was no infrastructure in place in the Soviet Union to do that. Um, you know, after the after well, you know, based on the small workshops and boutiques that existed before. However, um, they the Soviets didn't know how to build that from the ground up, so they had to buy the machinery to make that happen. Well, then why wouldn't they just go to one of their European neighbors? Because no one in Europe wanted to sell them the machinery. They needed to industrialize because they didn't want to potentially arm, quote unquote, that's a metaphorical arm, or even a literal arm, depending on what they're buying, <laughs> arm a competitor <clears throat> that could be another global power. So basically everyone in Europe shut their doors and they said, another scooter horn, piece of shit. Um, we're not going to sell you anything you need. Uh, the one place that didn't have any compunctions or reservations about selling the Soviets, what they needed was Duberhampton in Canton, Ohio. So that's why Soviets went to all fucking places. Uh, Canton, Ohio. They basically bought the machinery for the Duberhampton pocket watch uh, movement. It's a really, really cool movement. I forgot what the actual Duberhampton Canton, uh, Ohio name was for the movement, but you can tell it's that movement because it has a really distinctive... Uh, bridge escapement mechanism. It's like two pillars that are coming up. It's really, really cool. I, if you guys saw, check out the links from last week. I'll share them again for this week and you'll see what I'm talking about. The reason I'm spending so much time on this is because technically I would classify, and you can send me your hate mail if you're also a fellow uh, Soviet watch enthusiast, I would classify the Type 1 movement. The Type 1 movement is what they named the Duberhampton movement uh, once they made it 
in uh, in Moscow, um, the 30s. This is about the 30s or so. Uh, so the movement, the Duberhampton movement, after it was made in Moscow, they called it the Type One. I would argue that the Kirovsky Type One. And I fucking hate this nickname, but it's called the Kirovsky Kirovsky saucepan. It's a stupid fucking name, but I there's there's a whole bunch of dumb names in Soviet watches. But the Kirovsky Type One, I would argue, that is a pilot's uh, watch because um, when World War II broke out, many of the Soviet pilots that had to fly, uh, they probably wore a Type One. They probably wore a Kirovsky Type One. Uh, at this point in time, that's probably you know what the what it was kind of called. Uh, so it's actually a really cool watch. I found actually through Watch You Seek, I found this really cool fucking article. Um, what the fuck? It was on this, it was on this Watch You Seek thread, and basically what happens is uh, uh, there's a team of people, a team of I guess excavators or archaeologists. They um, they were able to find and salvage a uh, Russian World War II plane from like a frozen swamp. The plane crashed in the swamp. Um, what kind of plane was this? Let me see if I can figure it out. Because I don't know anything. This is why I need Michael, because Michael would have told me what these motherfuckers were flying during World War II. Uh, plane, ba 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 World War II crash. Pieces of the D-8-3? Hey, any uh, any pilots on this show know if that sounds right? <laughs> Let me Google it. Elysian D-A-D-B, Delia Babanskia, meaning long-range bomber, Soviet bomber. Yeah, look at that. Wow, shit. Flew in 1935. Okay, rock and roll. We're back on track. Uh, they found the wreckage of a D-B-3 plane um, that crashed in this frozen swamp Everything was preserved, uh, including the pilot's body, which is fucking terrifying, uh, if you ask me. Um, and, like, the jumpsuit and the hat. But more importantly, the watch he was wearing. Uh, there's really a really wonderful photo of them just, like, fishing it out of this, like, looks like gross, like, brown mud snow. Um, it's The watch is totally fucked. It's been, it's clearly had better days. It's all, like, waterlogged. It's disgusting looking. It looks like someone, like, it looks like an elephant stepped on it. Um, but there was some sleuthing going on in the watch you see thread and just in my ability to look at the watch I think this is a correct breakdown it looks like a Kurovsky type 1 uh, uh, watch the watch based on the uh, machinery and the technology that the Soviets had purchased from Deberhampton in 1930 and the thing is the time frame makes sense you know as well uh let me see. When did this thing crashed? Okay, there is evidence that this plane was doing its thing in the... So World War II was in 1939. Okay, they were able to date the parachute in the plane to 1940. So I think it's reasonable to assume that we're dealing with a plane that was in the air at least 1940. And if this thing was a World War II bomber, it was really only doing its thing during World War II. That said, the only watches that were really around, at least um, at this sort of scale, obviously there were some uh, lip-based watches that were uh, uh, roaming around as well. But in this situation, 
for someone that's in a plane, it's it is most likely a Kirovsky. So when I say I should apologize, when I say Kirovsky, Kirovsky was one of the name designations for the first Moscow watch factory. So um, in particular, at this time frame, this was most likely uh, Kirovsky. Um, or a Kirov, I apologize. C-I-R-O-V. There's two ways of saying it. There's a billion ways of saying certain things in Soviet watches, but um, it's actually it's just really badass to actually see, you know, at least what this one pilot was wearing and what we can use as evidence to assume many pilots were wearing. Uh, it's just cool to see this Kirov Type 1 saucepan. I'm going to stop calling it a saucepan. It's a dumb fucking name. Uh, it's really cool, actually. It's got those... Um, I don't know the technical name. I'm not a very knowledgeable watch person, but it's basically, it's got those tiny lugs, um, and it looks like this guy, it looks like he might have had it on a bunt strap. Man, that's so fucking cool. Wow. That is so cool. Man. So yeah, it's, it's, I would, I would say, and you can, you can find, you can find these Kirov, um, you know, type one saucepans, you can find them, uh, man. Here's one thing you have to understand, especially about two of my picks. It's going to be pretty fucking impossible to find them in non-Franken condition. When I say Franken condition, I'm implying that the watch uh, might function. It's all, all the pieces are there, but they pick and chose pieces from different models to make it work more often than not the same model but it might be like uh the majority of this watch was made in 1940 however we see that it has dial and movement elements from uh, a watch the same product line but a product line that was made in like 1942 or something like that so when i say franken that's what i mean there are certain soviet watches where you have to accept you will be inheriting some degree of a Franken watch. It's just fucking unavoidable. Unavoidable? Unavoidable? Snuck? Sneak? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, it was a really great... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a great tangent. There was a really great scene... Uh, man, Conan O'Brien did an interview, I think, with Jennifer Garner. God, years ago. And he said the word, like, snuck on air or something... And she challenged him and said, like, oh, Conan, you know, you've, you know, you went to Harvard. You should know it's, it's sneaked or something like that. Um, and so uh, they went to commercial break and they came back and, like, yeah, he busted out, like, a dictionary. And he goes, snuck. Ha! Ah! Like, it says snuck in the dictionary. Um, I know those interviews are usually mostly planned, but the, 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 the dynamic and the chemistry that occurred on air were, were great. That, those last 45 seconds had fucking nothing to do with watches. So, you know, I'm sorry if I lost anyone, but... Me being unsure uh, uh, how to phrase that word that I've already just totally forgotten just kind of made me get there. But it doesn't matter. We're talking about the Kurov, or Kurovsky, uh, um, type 1. You can find this for 200 bucks. You have to accept that some degree of it will be Franken. However, every collector has a different threshold for what they'll see as acceptable, you know, Frankenness. For me, I will accept Franken watches. As long as something isn't like fucking insanely egregious. And a great example is um, the Raketa Big Zero. The Raketa, Raketa Big Zero, I talked about it last week also. It's a pretty iconic watch to the two broke watch knobs. 
Um, I have one. It's one of my first vintage watches I ever got. I have seen Raketa Big Zeros with just the wrong fucking hands. One of the most iconic things about the Raketa Big Zero, in addition to the dial, it's those hands. It has like stubby, like little stubby, shite-ass T-Rex hands. Like they don't, they're not long enough. They don't point to what they need to point to. Um, but they're, it's characteristic of, of, the, of the watch. You know, I've seen Raketa Big Zeros with hands from other Raketas that are like long and skinny and like technically they point to where they need to point, but it's not authentic to the visual design of the watch. That is a level of Franken I will not accept. If something infringes on the original design of what the majority of the watch is supposed to be evoking, then I don't accept that. Um... I'm usually okay with some facets of movement Franken, unless it's something that uh, fucks up the date of the movement, like it does in another watch, which I'll talk about. Um, spoiler alert, it's the Poliot 3133. Uh, I'll talk about that in a bit. But um, especially with this, just kind of jumping back to the 30s here, with this Q, with this, the 30s slash 40s, with this Kirov uh, Type 1 saucepan, you just got to accept some of it's going to be um, Franken, and that's okay. That is okay. What I would uh, encourage you to do is use reference photos. You can go to ussrtime.info, which is the facsimile site created from uh, the late Mark Gordon's ussrtime.com, which no longer exists. Uh, use reference photos from there. Um, I'm fairly certain Mark had some in his collection. And just find something that you think is appropriate to your level of comfort. Like, okay, I know this balance wheel is brass, but it's supposed to be... I don't fucking know, stainless steel, uh, but everything in the dial looks okay. Uh, the hands are probably new, but they're only from a model that was like from two years after this production date. It's really weird. You have to get analytical with the level of Franken that you're willing to accept. Um, and it's given. You're not going to find a completely authentic Type 1, at least in this a at this time period. Because like, remember, if we're talking about affordable vintage pilot watches... You know, I want something that was potentially around, you know, the time period of when these things were in the air in World War II. Um, oh, God, 39 to 45? That's really fucking sad that I can't remember. Yeah, 45. Thank Christ. Whew. <laughs> 1939 to 1945. I want something that was as close to the original version of what this watch looked like when it was up uh, potentially in the air. Um so yeah, that's my first choice. I'm also going to go... I have decided to go in order <laughs> of, uh, of years here. So my first choice was from the 30s slash 40s. Pilot watch, affordable vintage pilot watch. Like I said, you can find these if you can accept vintage... Uh, uh, if you can accept Franken, you can find these on eBay. Um, oh man, like 200 bucks. Yeah, maybe, two, maybe a little bit more. I mean, anything over that I would ignore. Also, ignore any listings that say NOS or... Military commander watch. Blah, 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 blah. I'm not saying that stuff isn't true. I'm just saying there's no fucking way to verify it. You have to go on the facts that we know. We know the Kirov Type 1 um, was being made around this time. We know, based on that, um, uh, that, that plane they recovered from the swamp, that article which I'll share, we know that at least some pilots were wearing their Kirov Type 1s uh, in the air. You know, our first Moscow watch factory type one um 
I'm getting my dates mixed up with that, but it doesn't matter. If you Google it, you guys will see it. Um, we know people were wearing these watches you know, up in the air. And that's, in regards to facts, that's where you need to focus. There's no way we can be like, oh yeah, only, only generals got this watch, or like only, you know, platoon command, I have no idea, I'm not like a military expert, only platoon commanders got this, there's no fucking way of knowing that. All we can say for certain is that this watch was being made and circulated in the time frame of World War II, um, and... We also know that at least some pilots were wearing it in the air. So uh, I would classify this as a vintage pilot watch. And I would encourage you, if you're interested, to um, check out the links in my show notes and everything like that. And you see some cool photos. It's really a lot of fun. It's really it's remarkable, this photo, of the, uh, this, the, this salvage from this uh, plane they got from the swamp. Really, really cool. Man. Let's see here. I'm going to go in order of years. I wasn't going to do that originally, but whatever. Things change. That's 30s and 40s. Let's talk about the 50s and 60s, um, which one could potentially argue were pretty fucking incredible for the Soviet Union. Just to put this into perspective, uh, before 1917, the Soviet Union was barely industrialized. They couldn't feed themselves. The government was um, taking everything they could from the people. Um, it's pretty pretty let's just put it this way the situation before 1917 was dire enough for people in russia to riot revolt organize behind a party pull aristocrats aristocrats and nobles out of their homes kill them and basically just take the country back expunge non-russian companies you know from the country uh it was that dire it wasn't something that you could necessarily interpret as being like, oh, they couldn't get Wi-Fi service. It was a touch more dramatic than that. So bearing that in mind, that's what it was, 1917. Fast forward to 1961. Soviet's the first to put someone in space. First, put someone in space. Yuri Gagarin um, went up in the Vostok 1, 1961. They, 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 they put his smiling ass up into orbit. Uh, I forget how long he was up there for. Um, the story that I love is that when they put him up in the space, remember, no, I mean, this is the first, I mean, you know, dogs, I think dogs had gone to space before, poor dogs. But he was the first uh, man. And so they weren't really entirely sure how reentry was going to work depending on where he went because what if you're just like, and this is literally happened. What if you're just like a farmer or whatever, and then all of a sudden, this guy just lands in a parachute in your like field from like space? That's basically what happened. So what they had to do is they had to write in huge letters, you know, CCCP, you know, the, which is like the designation for instant relic for USSR. I don't know how it translates, but that's just like the difference. Um, CCCP on his helmet in giant, huge letters. That way, when like people saw him, they wouldn't like. When people saw him coming out of the sky, they wouldn't like shoot him. <laughs> they wouldn't think he was like, like an invading uh, 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 competitor country or something like that. So I don't know why I thought I just got a huge, uh, huge kick out of that. But yeah, so in in that span of time, 1917, 1961, the Soviets were the first to put a man um, in space. Within Soviet watches, there is no watch more confounding, eluding, and Frankened than the uh, supposed watch that Yuri Gagarin wore 
on his uh, space flight, which was a Stermansky 17-joule three-hander. Now, if you collect vintage watches and you have a dissenting opinion, uh, uh, you know, you got to hear me out. The watch that I'm focusing on is not Yuri Gagarin's 17-joule Stermansky three-hander. And so when I say Stermansky, that's also uh, first Moscow Watch Factory because the name keeps changing. Um, it's same same place, different name. Stermansky, first Moscow Watch Factory. Actually, all of these watches I'm talking about are first Moscow Watch Factory. That's funny. Um, he supposedly wore into space that, you know, um, a Stermansky 17-jewel three-hander. It's not necessarily the first watch in... Okay, I shouldn't say that. I should try and qualify this appropriately. Internet scuttlebutt holds that um, there was another watch... Uh, that was one of the there there have been other watches that first went up you know in space uh specifically like on I feel it's just horrible saying it some of the animals they sent up you know um there's indication that maybe some people had like timepieces in the the like the modules they put up with the dogs or anything like that so i I won't say definitively just because there's some evidence to suggest otherwise i won't say definitively that the stramansky 17 jewel three-hander was the first watch in space i will say that the stramansky 17 jewel three-hander was the first watch worn by a man in space <laughs> i think that's easy to say however it's not that watch that i'm focusing on i'm focusing on gagarin's 17 jewel watch to focus on gagarin's 15 jewel watch hear me out um there's a watch called the. Uh, it doesn't really have a name. It's just the Stermansky 15 Jewel uh, three-hander, you know, uh, uh, watch. And in the 50s, there's different like pilot schools and everything like that. Yuri Gagarin, before he was selected, you know, for the cosmonaut program and everything like that, um, he was just a Russian, uh, 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 you know, Air Force pilot, as most astronauts, you know, these days just tend to be. You know, he flew he flew planes and shit like that. And he was chosen for the cosmonaut program, so on and so forth. Um, but before that, uh, he was a pilot. And the watch that he honestly wore while he was flying planes, and the watch that probably most pilots wore, was a Air Force-specific issued 15-jewel Sturmansky. Um... And the one that Gagarin would have worn would have been given to him when he graduated from the Orenburg Pilot School in, oh God, 1961 was space, 1955, sorry, I had to like, I'm, I have like a, I have like a reading, like a reading disability, so I'm really shitty with numbers, if you guys couldn't fucking tell, um, <laughs> 19, 1955, um, I think he graduated, and he got that watch, he got the 15 jewel, uh, Sturmansky, um, three-hander it's a cool watch it's pretty unassuming this is something that i think some folks would struggle to call a pilot watch because it's not like a chronograph it doesn't have a crazy uh dial like uh, scale on there it's just got big numerals which is you know which that makes sense for you know a pilot's watch um three hands uh most of these models most of these 15 jewel models have you know the air force sort of like wings on it um, which is basically a logo that gets associated with Stermansky, as we'll see in my last pick here. Um, and it's got the little red star within the wings and everything like that, and it says Stermansky in Cyrillic. More often than not, it will also have the first Moscow Watch Factory uh, stamp on the dial, so it looks like a one... No, hold on. 
<laughs> it's in like a diamond pattern. It's like an M, a one, a four, and a three. I'm super sorry if like I'm not doing an appropriate representation of how to lay out those characters. I don't know Russian. I can't read Cyrillic. Uh, I only know English, and my English isn't even that great. So it's just what it is. But uh, there'll be photos. Um, again, this uh, my reference photos are coming from Mark Gordon's. Uh, collection, uh, which is living on in the facsimile site ussrtime.info. Uh, let me see here. It's a, yeah, it's an unassuming watch. The movement that's in this watch is actually really cool. So um, I mentioned before how the Kirov Type One was based off of the movement technology that the Soviets had purchased from Duber Hampton in Canton, Ohio, in the 30s. The technology in this watch, in this uh, Sturmansky 15 Jewel three-hander, is based off of a lip. Uh, lip technology. So I talked about lip last week also in regards to Raketa because it was the lip R26 slash R25. I always confuse the two. Um, it was the technology in that watch which inspired the Raketa, you know, um, 26 uh, XX caliber movements, the 260, ooh, 32609, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Um, that lip technology is what is in this uh, Sturmansky three-hander so this is where it gets weird if you guys thought it was difficult to find an original <laughs> a somewhat original type one uh Kirov type one you know it's going to be fucking impossible you have a better ch you have a better chance of Yuri Gagarin landing on your front lawn right now. He's been dead for a long time. You have a better chance of Yuri Gagarin landing on your lawn right now in a rhinestone spacesuit with like Elton John on his headphones while he's double fisting a Coke and a Pepsi. Like that, you have a better chance of that happening. All right, than finding an uh, original, an o not even an it's just an original unfranken either Sturmansky 15 jewel. Which is, um, you know, Gagarin's uh, flight school watch, the watch he got graduating from flight school, or Sturmansky uh, 17 Jewel. The watches basically look the same. There's some size differences, and obviously there's movement differences because the jewel count is different, but the watches, you know, on quick ocular pat down look the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, 15 Jewel Sturmansky flight school. 17 Jules Sturmansky uh, space flight watches, it is not possible to find something that's not franking because, because uh, the event of Yuri Gagarin going into space is so huge, every time one of the, uh, every time like a watch tech or a watch servicer or a watch flipper in um, one of the for former Soviet bloc countries, which are mainly in uh, Eastern Europe, every time they get one of those watches, they or at least they used to, I don't know what happens anymore, if any have even fucking survived, but what they used to do is, it would be in such bad condition, and this is actually pretty a pretty common thing that happens in a lot of collecting niches, which rely on a, on a piece of uh, memorabilia to be as preserved as possible. So like, if I found uh, a Roman sword and it had all this patina on it, I would ruin that sword by cleaning it. It's the same principle... But the thing is, someone would clean it because they would want it to look nicer because they think if it looked nicer, then it would fetch more money. That's what happens with a lot of these Sturmansky 15-jewel and 17-jewel watches because being tied to Yuri Gagarin, um, a lot of the people in these former Soviet bloc countries figure this is a high-ticket item, but no one's going to buy it when it looks like a fucking, like, like a fossilized dinosaur hemorrhoid. Like, it looks horrible. 
So I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to maybe re-loom the dial. Uh, also, hashtag, these things are radium loom. So if you do find one that actually has the original dial, just you know, please bear that in mind. Uh, radium, it's got radium uh, luminescence on it. Uh, so don't open it. I think that, yeah, don't, if you, <laughs> don't open it because you'll breathe in radium dust and uh, that's not good. That's uh, no bueno. Fuck was I saying? These people, they'll get the watches and they'll figure I'll get more money if it looks nicer and they'll clean it. They'll maybe franken the hands. Maybe they'll mess with the movement. Maybe the crown's all fucked up. Maybe they'll have to repolish the case. Um, you know, so that makes it pretty hard to find one of these things in the in the condition that you would classify as as non-franken as possible. I think the only way you maybe going to get this is if you find someone who has a prolific Soviet watch collection who maybe got one of these things, you know, forever ago and they've just been sitting on it and you get it from them. I don't think you would ever find one that's quote-unquote appropriate on eBay. That said, I'm kind of okay with that because you can find relatively appropriately franken ones, ones that aren't franken to look too fucking ridiculous. I mean, you should be able to find again, maybe two hundred, maybe two hundred bucks. I should probably let's let's Google this together, guys. For anyone that's still fucking listening to the show, uh, Stermansky, fifteen jewel. Oh, and hold up, excuse me, I have to qualify this. When you do search for this watch on eBay, if you are Doing it as a prospective buyer, don't type in Stermansky, Yuri Gagarin, or Stermansky Gagarin, or anything. Just look for Stermansky 15 Jewel. And just filter through all the bullshit, because the other really difficult thing that occurs with this watch is that um, they've done so many reissues. So Stermansky slash Polyot slash... First Moscow Watch Factory is owned currently by a German-Russian business conglomerate that has kind of really made things a bit difficult to understand. They keep doing Polyot 3133 reissues. They keep doing Yuri Gagarin reissues. Um, and uh, it's just really... Uh, unfortunately, people try to pass off those reissues as like, you know, something that was around when Yuri Gagarin was around. But like, no, like... If you're going to pursue this watch, except you're going to probably get something that's Franken, unless you somehow spend a shit ton of money and buy directly from like a, one of these prolific Soviet watch collectors that are around. I'm not one of those people. I don't have a prolific Soviet watch collection. Um, I just have like, I just like researching and all this stuff like that. Um, except you know that you're going to have to buy a watch that's Franken most likely, and it's going to look like shit. There's no way of getting around it, especially because these things are radium dials. The ra so if you're not familiar with radium loom, um, basically it doesn't age well. You'll accumulate on the watch dial where called radium burns, where literally the loom um, just burns the dial. So it looks like little scorch marks. I mean, it's kind of badass, but you know, some people might be kind of weird about it. So here, I'm on, I'm on eBay right now. Okay, let me see what we got here. This one actually doesn't look that bad. It looks like someone tried disgustingly trying to relume this thing. What are we dealing with movement-wise? That looks right. That looks right. Wow. This one actually looks not bad. Huh. Crown looks right. Let me see this. 
this is not very entertaining, but I'm just looking at this watch right now. Huh. Okay. That's weird, but interesting. Uh, okay, I take that back. Maybe not 200. You can probably find one with an appropriate amount of uh, Franken for five, 600 bucks maybe. Um, which is a lot of money. I mean, don't get me wrong, especially for uh, vintage Soviet watches, that's a lot of money. But for a vintage pilot watch in the world of vintage pilot watches, that's way more affordable than like a vintage Flieger, which is the other watch that gets, you know, thrown around a, a shit ton when you talk about vintage pilot watches. But but yeah, so I wanted to highlight this Sturmansky 15 Jewel, and even the 17, 17 Jewel to an extent, but I'm, I'm going to focus specifically on the 15 Jewel because, again, we have to follow evidence. The evidence is we know the Sturmansky 15 Jewel watch was issued to people who graduated from uh, Soviet flight schools. And because of that, by, the na by, the, by that nature, we know pilots wore them. Uh, the 17 Jewel, I honestly don't, don't know that much about the watch. Pilots probably wore it because I think the 17 Jewel is just an updated version. So if you graduated from flight school in the Soviet Union in the 60s, they probably gave you the, the 17 Jewel. But I'm just going to focus on the 15 Jewel because, again, the 17 Jewel um, was the one that Gagarin wore into space. The 15 Jewel is the one that he graduated with. It all kind of gets fucked up and lumped together. But um, I just thought it would be a cool watch to highlight and just, again... Putting the caveat out there, if you do pursue this watch, accept that you're probably going to get some of it that's, you know, franken. Uh, it's just you having to determine your level of personal threshold with which you're willing to kind of determine between original and franken. So, uh, let's see here. Doing a recap, uh, but, but, but my first choice was this uh, Kirovsky Type 1, um, just because I found evidence that, you know, uh, World War II pilots... Uh, wore this thing, which is pretty fucking cool. Kurosaki Type 1 is a watch that has a huge... Uh, uh, technically, the Type 1 movement has a huge you know, history behind it, but the Kurosaki Type 1, specifically, we can kind of put into that you know, time frame with uh, World War II pilots. Uh, the second choice, which I, I just spent way too much time talking about, which I'm sorry, it's the Sturmansky 15 Jewel. Uh, you can put in parentheticals Yuri Gagarin's flight school watch. But again, if you search for this thing, don't type in Gagarin or any of that shit because you're just increasing the likelihood of you trying to get a fake watch that someone's trying to pass off or you just getting something incredibly frankened. Um, let me see here. Yeah, I respect the pay. Like, I think safely because I'm seeing some pretty cool examples here on eBay uh, in the 500 four to $500 range. Um, some of these just are just fucking fake, which is really upsetting to see. Um... But some of these look interesting, actually. Hmm. Okay. Cool to see. Uh, that was a loud car. Third watch. So we did the 30s and 40s. That was the Kirov, uh, Kirovsky uh, Type 1. Uh, we did the 50s and 60s. That was the Sturmansky 15 Jewel, uh, which was issued to um, graduates of... I don't know if it was all or some, but some... We can safely at least say, based on evidence, some... Uh, Soviet watch schools and the thing is here's the thing also remember those watches at least in the time frame if you can find one in the right time frame those weren't given to civilians the Sturmansky 15 Jewel only went to flight schools which is pretty fucking badass if you ask me so if you find one and if you're happy with the level franken that's on there rock and roll uh, third watch I wanted to talk about sorry I have to cross off so I don't get confused so that was the 50s and 60s let's move to the 70s 
Let's move to the 70s. Let's move to the 70s and let's talk about, as I mentioned before, the pole yacht 3133. So if you recall in last week's discussion when I was talking about Soviet watches, uh, I spent uh, an amount of time talking about the Soviets' inability, or not, not the inability, the struggle that they had cracking the chronograph. So the Soviet chronograph was something that, in my opinion, I would put uh, in a field as equally difficult as the Soviets trying to crack the 200-meter diver. However, I think the 200-meter diver might have been a bit more successful than their ability to crack the Soviet uh, chronograph because all innovations and things like that with the Soviet chronograph, uh, I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, uh, they ended with the 3133. Um, you know, whether they built on that and everything like that. Because before that, it was the 3017, the Strela 3017, which was in the, oh God, that was during the space race too, so 50s and 60s. And that was based off a, a Venus movement. And then before that, there were a couple other tries, and it just, nothing really ever worked. Um, so the Soviet chronograph was really difficult for them to crack because they needed it. You know, they needed precision instruments. They needed, you know, the same the same equipment that other European and American scientists needed, especially during like the space race and just the the, the all the innovations of the flight. Those same timekeeping measurement instruments. You know, the Soviets needed that shit too. But again. The Soviets had this idea of relying on what they themselves could build. Um, but it took them a long time to really build an appropriate uh, chronograph. Again, the 3017 was, was, was the first really, really, really big jump start. And then, um, you know, I think the final iteration, the 3133, which is the, which is the chronograph that I'm going to be <clears throat> focusing on, um, was, was probably it. But I don't think it was as successful as the win they were able to get with the uh, Vostok Amphibia being the first 200-meter diver. Interesting tidbit. <laughs> the uh, chronographs were so coveted by the Soviets that during World War II, whenever the Soviets would shoot down a German fighter, German plane, uh, the first thing they did was rip off that motherfucker's watch because more than likely the uh, German officer or the German pilot was probably wearing... Or I guess they were checking to see the so you know this is obviously they weren't all wearing the same watch but basically, um, if the Soviets shot down a plane and if that pilot was wearing a Tutima chronograph, the Soviets were more than happy to steal that shit. Uh, they became so widely kind of picked off of crashed pilots or corpses that it just became one of those things. It just became one of those things that they... And, there, and so there are examples out there of, uh, you know, uh, Tatimas that were uh, picked off of German um, planes that had crashed because the Soviets needed chronographs. Back then, they were experimenting with some chronographs, but it wasn't anything on the level of what Tatima was doing in the 30s and 40s. Uh, really funny also is after World War II, when Germany got split in half, the half of Germany with Tutima uh, ended up on the Russian side, on the Soviet side. I apologize, the Soviet side. So what the Soviets did was they went, they took all of Tutima's machines, uh, all the materials, all that shit, and they moved it to Moscow, and they started making the Tutima chronograph in Moscow. So there are Tutima, T-U-T-I-M-A, there are Tutima chronographs out there made in Moscow with Moscow First Watch, uh, First Watch Factory stamps um, which is really cool. I've only seen a, I've only seen a couple for sale um, 
and they're fucking expensive, like two, like like two thousand bucks. But it's an incredible piece of history if you can find like a Tutima dialed watch with like <laughs> first Moscow watch factory, um, you know, movement stamps or even like dial stamps or anything like that. Um, but I wouldn't consider that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider that them trying to build their own chronograph. Uh, that was like a weird war acquisition thing. I'm not like a warologist. So I don't know how that shit works. But I wouldn't put that in the timeline of the Soviets trying to crack. Uh, the Soviet chronograph, but it's just it just I'm just trying to illustrate how important the Soviet chronograph was um, to the military to, to their to the Soviet military. Uh, so three zero one seven, which we talked about last week, and three zero one seven was phased out when the thirty one when the Polyop thirty one thirty three came about. The Polyop thirty three uh, thirty one thirty three came about in the oh god seventies. Yep, seventies, and they were originally issued to. Uh, Soviet Navy under a dial designation called Okia. I never know how to say it. Again, I apologize. I don't know Russian. I can't read Cyrillic. Um, oh, I'll write it on my piece of paper so I don't fuck it up. O K E A H. Is it Okia or Okian? Huh. Let's figure. You are the weakest link. Okian. Maybe it's Okian. Okian. Okay, I'm just listen, listen, guys. Here, bear with me. Okay, Polyot O K E A N. Okay, or okay, it doesn't really matter. You'll see it. You'll you'll Google it. And you'll see it. That, however, is not the watch I'm focusing on because that is the uh, the the dial designation of chronograph that went most likely to um, Soviet Navy. There's a type of 3133 that they made, which they issued to the Air Force and which pilots wore. That was the and if you guessed it, very good. The Sturmansky, <laughs> the Sturmansky thirty-one thirty-three. Um, it's really funny. So the Polyot, so 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 the 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 Okean or Okia, however you say it, thirty-one thirty-three. The naval version of this watch is, I think, the one that's technically more coveted in the whole lifespan of the Polyot thirty-one thirty-three because I think technically it was the first. I think technically these Okean dials. Um, were the first. Uh, however, I I prefer the Sturmansky thirty one thirty three versus the so the the Air Force's thirty one thirty three over the Navy's thirty one thirty three just because um I'm pulling up a photo here. I gotta find a nice photo. Ah, there it is. Perfect. I love the dial on here uh, much more because it's clean. There's no words at twelve o'clock. It only has the same, or at least a similar, I'm sure the style's changed, a similar flight kind of Air Force logo at 6 o'clock that the Sturmansky uh, 15 Jewel had. And it also, it's got, the, it's got that, uh, the, the, the logo on the case back, and it's got Sturmansky written on the case back as well. I'll, uh, again, I'm using Mark Gordon's collection here, ussrtime.info, as my reference, and I'll share that. <clears throat> in the uh, show notes and everything like that as well. And if you have trouble getting to the, getting to the show notes, you guys can hit me up and I'll I'll share, you know, any links that I have. But um, you can still find some of these Sturmansky 3133s. You just have to know what you're looking for. If you want a Soviet chronograph that was issued uh, to the Air Force, you got to find one of the actual Sturmansky dials. So it can't say Polyot on the dial in either English characters or in Cyrillic. It can't say Okean or Okia, however you say it. It's got to have nothing 
on the dial word-wise or logo or word-wise except the Stermansky wings uh, logo at six o'clock um, also I gotta put this out there there are a shit ton of fakes <laughs> if you take nothing away from this episode take away that there are just a shit ton of fakes of all Soviet watches that are even potentially coveted um, this one in particular because Oh, man, in the 90s, I think they made a bunch of fake dials in uh, in Asia. They made a bunch of fake 3133 dials in Asia. And I'm going to tell you guys the secret to determining if your Polyot 3133 is, uh, is a fake or a real. Or a real. <laughs> if it's fake or real. Your Polyot 3133 is real if your loom is like pistachio ice cream green and fucking disgusting looking. I don't know why. Um, I'm not like a loom expert, but the Soviets never cracked uh, loom. They phased out radium loom. Radium loom worked, but they phased it out um, before everyone else, I think, because they recognized the obviously the caustic effects of um, you know, using radium and everything like that. If you're if you're at all interested in the history of radium loom, um, oh man, there's that documentary called Radium Girls. That's out there. Radium Girls, yeah. Um, so uh, basically, the I the, the, this documentary is following the effects that radium loom had on the factory workers who were applying it to the watches, and more often than not, it was actually women in these factories. What they would do is they would actually paint the loom on with a brush. But the brush had to be so fine that they would have to lick the end of the brush, or like quickly, like get it wet, like by using their mouth. So they would, so the the, the 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 actual you know tip of the brush would be focused and honed to a point that would allow them to precisely paint the the radium paint. The problem is in doing that, they also ingested the radium paint, um, which had like the like horrible effects, like like you know obviously death is one of them like mouth cancer and all of these kinds of like different like radiation deformations and it's, it's, it's really awful um if you think about it, if you i mean if you think about it but if you're at all interested huh, if you are uh check out that uh documentary movie i think it's like a docudrama movie i've never seen it i just i i just i just know about radium loom and all that shit but i've never actually seen it but someone must tell me about it um where the fuck am i yes poyot uh the loom, your, your Polyot 3133 is real if the loom is pistachio ice cream green and fucking cakey, just disgusting looking. They could never, the Soviets could never crack loom. They never really knew how to make it look good, I guess. Fake Stermanskis have great loom. It's white and it's perfectly smooth. It's like bead smooth. You can also tell if your Stermansky is fake is if, it, if it's a mix and match. Uh, sometimes the internal bezel has an has a internal 12-hour bezel. The internal bezel, uh, there's a triangle at 12 o'clock, and it's got that green loom. Sometimes that green loom will be there, but they'll have put a fake dial on, so it'll be green loom in your uh, GMT 12-hour bezel, but then um, modern uh, white loom on your markers and your hands indicating that you, know, you have a, a freaking 3133. So this is one of those... Uh, instances where I was telling you thresholds, you know, what level of threshold are you comfortable with in regards to your Franken watch? Me, I am not comfortable with fake, not fake, I shouldn't say fake, with, um, fuck, I'll say fake, it's easier, with fake loom on my 3133. The, the green, disgusting loom on these Polyot 3133s is emblematic 
of the look of the watch. It's a design feature. It's a color. It's it's literally a pop of color. The internal bezel is blue. The numbers in the bezel are yellow. The loom is green. The chronograph uh, register, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the the chronograph second sweep is red. The running seconds is black. There's you know the actual minute register for the at three o'clock is red. So there's a lot of really fun colors in here and you know outside of the intention of the watch it actually it's it's designed in a very fun way if you don't have that green loom for me the magic is uh, is lost so you can find you can find all manner of 3133s there are a shit ton of dial versions for this watch because also um the history of this watch is for a while they were only issuing these two I think to military, so yeah, to, to the Navy and to the Air Force, and then um, after a little while, they began to produce what they called the civilian dials, quote-unquote civilian dials. So these are dial versions, which uh, the intention that some people in the watch community have interpreted as being for civilian purchase and use. I don't know how true that is. That's why I put civilian dial in quotes. Um, I'm not really sure, but if you wanted to, but just keeping the focus of the discussion to affordable vintage watches, pilot watches, um, look for a Stermansky dial Polyop 3133 with the right loom, with the right dial, and um, here's the kicker also. You have got to watch out for uh, the movement being freaking. These 3133 movements, uh, it's based off of a Valju 7734, but these... Um, 3133 movements are pretty heavily franken. There was a really good... Oh, I can't remember it now. I'll find the link. There was a really good buying guide. But one of the quickest ways that I can share with you guys to determine if your 3133 movement is at least in the right time period. So, okay, here, let, let's, lay out, let's lay it out like this. If I'm looking for a uh, Sturmansky 3133, a Polyop 3133 um, that was issued to the Air Force maybe in the 70s or the 80s, I need to verify that that watch, you know, was actually issued in the 70s or 80s. You can do that uh, by looking at the movement. This isn't the only definitive way to do this, but for me, it's helped me uh, a lot kind of um, look at something and say, okay, that's not right, I'm moving on. Because um, if, if one of the boxes isn't checked immediately, then you know your, your watch is not in the right time period. Okay, so I'll provide an example of, of both of these so you guys can see. But in the movement at, so if you're looking at the movement, you're, the case back is off, and you know hopefully these photos you guys are looking at. If you're thinking about buying this watch, you know you look at the case back at 12 o'clock. There is a lever slash arm that kind of remember, guys. I'm not like a watch expert. Excuse me. That kind of looks like an octopus. It's an octopus that's attacking. I wish Michael was here. I miss Michael. There's an octopus that's attacking the crown. <laughs> and also, there are two arms that are going to the <clears throat> the iconic triangle-shaped uh, bridge plate. That's also one of the iconic visual cues of this watch is this kind of triangle uh, delta-shaped uh, bridge plate that's holding parts of the gear train uh, together. There, there's a lever that connects those two things, and the majority of it, the majority of that lever's body is at 12 o'clock with a big screw. A, it's a big screw in it. It's like it's bigger than a case screw. Um, 
actually it's, a, it's the biggest fucking screw on this movie I'm looking at right now so you, it, just look for the big screw at 12 o'clock next to that if you see a cone shaped little plate on the lever uh, that watch was made probably in the uh, late 80s or the, or the 90s which is an indication that it's probably not one of the it's probably not in the time period you want um, especially if your dial, if your dial is from the seventies slash early eighties, but your movement is indicating that it's from the late eighties slash nineties, possibly, um, that's an incongruence where you can, that's, you have to make your, again, your personal choice. Okay. The dial is right. The movements were not right. Am I okay? Still getting this watch. Am I not? Okay. That little plate that I'm talking about, that cone shaped plate, and I'll have photos so you guys can check this out. That isn't there on the uh, earlier models. Huh. Let me double check. Now, now, now I'm second guessing myself. This is what happens when you do a show by yourself. Uh, again, it's interesting when you have to Google the source of information and you end up Googling yourself. Bear with me a second, guys. Ba, 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 ba. Two piece. Yep. Nineteen eighty six. Yep. So that uh, lever, that lever I'm talking about, that piece of cone shaped metal was added in the mid eighties. So, if I want a Stermansky dial Air Force Polyot thirty one thirty three that has as many right parts as possible, I want the dial, I want the right loom, and I want a single piece lever i don't need the two-piece lever so the two-piece lever is the one with the cone the single piece lever where it's just a big piece of metal again i'll have photos you guys can see it so um you can still find these oh man price wise it's tough to say it really depends on you know uh what you're willing to spend and the condition the watch is in but i would never do anything over 500 bucks and 500 bucks is really like on the good end. Um, you'll see, and the thing is, you'll see stuff for over 500, but like it'll be too clean. And by that, I mean maybe it's a redial. And again, the loom has to be shitty. The dial is authentic if the loom, if the loom is shitty. So I think if your budget's three to 500 bucks, um, you can probably find uh, one of these things. So those are my three choices. God, that was a lot of fucking talking. Those are my three choices for uh, affordable vintage watches in the pilot sort of area, uh, going you know from 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 bottom to top in my choices, and then I'll, I'll share Michael's choices again. I don't know much about Michael's choices, so that's just why I'm, I'm having him at the end there. Um, I'm starting in the 30s and the 40s, and I chose affordable vintage the uh, the Kurowski Type One, based off the Deber Hampton uh, movement that the first Moscow Moscow watch factory had bought in the 30s. Um, we have evidence that uh, pilots were wearing it, or at least some pilots were wearing it in World War II. It's a really cool watch. Um, you can find passable examples on eBay for 200 bucks. Uh, going from the 30s to 40s to the 50s and 60s, my second choice was a Stermansky 15 Jewel watch, which would have been issued um, to graduates of some Soviet uh, flight schools. Again, you, it's going to be a struggle to find one that's uh, that's at that meets your personal threshold of Franken slash non-Franken, but uh, they're out there. Um, oh yeah, and I think um, you probably find these for maybe 500. 
I saw some. I actually saw some pretty interesting examples uh, for you know between the four and five hundred mark. And then my third choice was the Sturmansky. Technically, it's the Sturmansky thirty-one thirty-three, but colloquially everyone refers to the movement as pole yacht thirty-one thirty-three. But um, as you dig around, you'll get a sense of kind of how the designations work. But the Sturmansky thirty-one thirty-three uh, issued to the Air Force. <clears throat> really, really cool watch. You got to find the right movement uh, uh, niches. You got to find the right loom if you want to find something authentic. Uh, all of these watches, um, as I've shared, have evidence that pilots use them. Pilots use them as necessity dictated. So I classify all of these as uh, as pilot watches. Michael's choices. Yeah, I wish Michael was here. Who else misses Michael? I miss my friend. Um, Michael's got two and a half choices here. The last one I'm gonna I'll I'll save this one other one for last because this is a watch I actually know about. Uh, Michael's first choice was the Citizen Wingman, made in the '80s, between two and three hundred bucks. It's actually really cool. It's like an Annie Digi watch, and um, <clears throat> Michael and I were talking about it. It's actually really cool because I could totally see like like a modern pilot wearing <laughs> wearing a watch like this. So uh, check that out. I'll have it in the show notes. And the other watch he shared here, I know even less about. Um, I think it's part of that whole Benrus slash marathon sort of like like World War or not World War like like military watches. It's the Type Two from the seventies and the eighties, particularly the Adenac version. Um, Adenac, I think it's in regards to marathon. We've talked about that on air before. You can find these potentially for between maybe seven hundred to. Uh, you know, one thousand, uh, one thousand dollars. Also, all our prices are in USD because we're we're in the United States. So sorry, guys. I often find myself apologizing after I tell people I'm in the United States. Uh, that's too good. Michael's third, Michael's third choice here is a watch I actually know a shit ton about, and he was a bit trepidatious about including it because it's not technically. I at least I don't classify it technically as a pilot watch. Michael actually chose the Strela three zero. Uh, 17, which I talked about last week in regards to the Soviet space program. Um, so the, the Strela 3017, you know, um, it was one of the attempts at a chronograph. I mean, fairly successful. They, they used it for like 15 years until the 3133, which I talked about, came around. Um, but he chose that one. I know Michael has a particularly strong affinity for the uh, export Seconda dial version, which is black. It's got the green cakey loom. Uh, beautiful uh, layout, you know, very classic layout, and uh, it just feels, it just feels spacey. It just feels like a space race watch. Um, I don't know if Michael is, was was calling out the Seconda three zero one seven in particular, but he told me the Strela three zero one seven. But um, but that was his choice. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure someone's flown with that watch. Um, here, let's classify. Here, let's just do. It. Let's classify that as a pilot watch because I'm sure cosmonauts probably had to do test flights, and they wore that watch. Sure, it counts. Um, price ranges for Strela three zero one sevens. God, it's tough to say because there's a lot of fake ones out there. I've seen them for six hundred to a thousand. Every now and then you'll see some for three hundred. That's a tough watch, particularly to get. What I would suggest is if you see one, do your research. A lot of the similar principles apply to what I had shared before. Make sure the dial is right because there were a few different Strela. Uh, there are a few different 3017 dial versions. 
Um, make sure the loom is right, depending on what the dial version you're going for. Again, use ussrtime.info as your uh, visual reference. So um, in terms of our affordable watch series, I will say um, these are some of the more expensive watches we've ever shared. We've had affordable vintage watch series episodes where we did like really, really affordable watches. But I think just the nature of trying to get affordable quote-unquote pilot watches uh, means that you're going to be paying uh, a little bit more, you know, than than normal. So, I hope everyone enjoyed the show this week. I do apologize that Michael couldn't, uh, you know, be with us. Um, I appreciate everyone being here with me. Um, you know, what I love is that every time you know someone like reaches out to us or we talk to people, um, they're usually surprised to learn that Michael and I aren't in the same room. Michael and I, I'm in I'm in Central Florida. Excuse me. Michael's in. Uh, Michael's in Washington State, you know, at least on the West Coast. Um, so we record a time zone difference. You know, we don't record in the same room, and uh, we usually don't edit the show. So usually when we record, it's us just doing, us just hitting record and talking. Uh, and so for two weeks in a row now, I've done that by myself, and it's kind of weird. This is all just one take. It's not like no one's editing this. That's why there's no intro music. <laughs> Because Michael puts the intro music in. Michael does all the audio processing stuff. I do all of the, um, I do most of the the website stuff and and things like that. So um, I do appreciate you guys joining me. I hope this has been insightful or interesting. Again, we got a lot of Soviet watch history in on this one. I do apologize for not knowing too much about Michael's picks. Maybe if I can get him on air uh, next week, we can talk about that. Or maybe Michael and I can do a live stream during the weekday this week. Um... So we can just kind of shed some more light on his choices here. But uh, let me see. Ah, I do need to make this note. If you are looking at Soviet watches, vintage Soviet watches, and you're a bit turned off at the fact that you have to, that you're only seeing watches out of like, you know, Bulgaria, Ukraine, some parts of Russia, and you feel a bit uncomfortable buying something from a former Soviet bloc country, Yet you have to leave those prejudices at the door. There is no other affordable and, in my opinion, appropriate way to collect vintage Soviet watches unless you're buying from these places. If you feel more comfortable buying from a U.S. seller, I'll share this bit of information with you. A, it's going to be more expensive, you know, uh, without question, it's going to be more expensive. And B, it doesn't guarantee that you're ha- that you're buying a quote-unquote real watch. I have seen. Vintage Soviet watches on sale before on like really well-known vintage watch like like selling sites uh, here in the states, um, and I've seen some fake-ass watches that they're saying are real. I don't think it's malicious. I think it's just a lack of knowledge. Um, so I would encourage you if you want to get into vintage Soviet watches, buy from the source. Buy. You should see. You should have no issues buying. Um, from some of the uh, countries where they come out of. Yeah, so a lot of, a lot of it's Ukraine, uh, Bulgaria, I know you see a ton of, um, and obviously some, some parts of Russia as well. There are others that I can't remember right now. Um, and the really cool thing about buying from, from uh, some of these former uh, uh, Soviet bloc countries is you place your order, post takes like two months. I don't know why, I'm not like a post expert, I'm not a post master. <clears throat> but post from those countries usually takes about two months. Um, but here's the great thing. You place your order. After about three weeks, you kind of forget you placed your order. And then five weeks later, you're surprised. It's like Christmas. 
buying Soviet watches from like Bulgaria, Ukraine, parts of Russia, um, it's like surprise Christmas. You too could have Christmas in March uh, if you, <laughs> if you place your Soviet watch order in January. Um, that's that's always one of the fun things. Um, and like it shows up at your door and has all these fucking like stamps and like like marks and you can't read anything that's on the envelope. It's actually a lot of fun. <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. So yeah, please have no compunctions about buying. Um, just please do your due diligence and uh, looking at looking at photos, asking questions. I've only ever had good experiences uh, dealing, asking questions with, from sellers who were selling from uh, you know Ukraine, Bulgaria, parts of Russia. They're usually, I mean, sometimes there could be like like language barriers, but they're always usually more than happy to just talk or answer your questions or offer you know a bit more information. Um, yeah, I would. I, I. I. don't think you guys should be nervous about that. You know, at all. Just again, check seller ratings, do your photo references, do your homework. Uh, the onus is on you to be, you know, an informed vintage Soviet watch collector, even just a fucking watch collector. Ah oh, man, here, let's do this. I've talked to you guys enough. <laughs> One take. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Episode 179 of the Two Book Box House Podcast, Affordable Vintage Watches Part Nine. Pilot watches, uh, Michael's picks, Citizen Wingman from the 80s, um, his second pick, Adenac Type 2 from the 70s and 80s, uh, and also the Strela, uh, or even even the Seconda, 3017. My picks, uh, the Kurovsky Type 1 from the 30s and 40s, the Stermansky 15 Jewel Flight School Graduate Watch from the 50s slash 60s, and the, um, uh, you know, ever popular Sturmansky uh, technically 3133 uh, Soviet chronograph from the 70s let us know your thoughts on this week's show um, share your picks for affordable uh, vintage pilot watches because it's kind of a weird niche it's kind of a weird niche to try and um, hone in on and really find appropriate examples for so let us know if there's anything that any sort of facets that we've missed within the affordable kind of vintage, uh, you know, niche. Um, in addition to that, uh, thank you so much for checking out both of these episodes last week and this week were, you know, it's just me. I had a lot of really cool feedback from last week's episode. I'm glad you guys like uh, just more history and stuff, you know. Um, I know sometimes the wristwatch bar talk thing, like it's cool, but like, I think every now and then it's just nice for folks to hear something different. Um, my cat's here. Yes, my love? Can you guys hear my cat? What's wrong? You have a bad dream? She was sleeping. Now she's awake. I don't know what that means. You're so good. But here, sorry, I'm very distracted. I'm fucking tired. I've been talking to people for an hour. Well, more than an hour. Hour and 40-ish minutes. Here, let's do this. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's show. Let us know your thoughts. Check out twobrokewatchknobs.com. Check out our Patreon page. We're also working on trying to have our Patreon page just be more like... I don't understand how to engage on the Patreon page. It's something that we're working on. Um, I might ask I might ask some people in my network to just help me just with like information because I don't really understand the best way to appropriately leverage that in a way where you guys can support the show because you love it but then at the same time i'm still doing something on patreon to give back to you uh that said we actually have some patreon specific episodes michael and i have a sister show that we do on patreon it's free you don't have to pay to um to listen to it um but if you if you're so inspired you want to donate to the show through patreon that's super cool too but you don't have to you can just go to patreon 
uh, and listen to those episodes. I think there's like maybe only three or four. There's not a lot. Um, and they're definitely kind of their own sort of vibe. They're shorter. You know, I think they're like 45 minutes or something like that. Um, so check out the Patreon page. Check out our Amazon affiliate link as well. Um, had a really wonderful response from folks the last time I talked about it uh, last week. It is super easy to use. I think some people were just surprised by how easy it is to use it. If you're shopping on Amazon, if you're in the UK or in the US, I should caveat that, and you're shopping on Amazon um, on the regular, you can support TBWS without paying any extra money and by just doing your normal shopping. Um, you know, If you have any questions on how that works, let me know. But basically, just click on one of our affiliate links or just go to the site and click on the banner that says TBWS like Amazon Buying Guide or something like that. That will take you to our Amazon um, page. We have an Amazon quote-unquote influencer page. Um, and then from there, you should just be able to just, just go and type in whatever you want to the search bar and like, just do your regular shopping. And then like basically Amazon then knows that we sent you to their site, so they send us uh, basically like a finder's fee. Um, I have no other way of describing it other than that. And it costs you guys, costs you guys nothing, you know, extra. So, um, yeah, had a great response from that last time. So if you have any questions that, let me know what's up. And, uh, I think that's it. I'm looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts. And I guess, I guess I should somehow try and end the show without Michael. It's always hard ending the show without Michael. I think I drew my cat into it last time. I'll, I'll do it again this time. They're actually both here. Both my cats. I have two cats, Ying and Yang. Sisters. Poor girls. Yang, is it that time? Is it that sad time? Yeah, I don't know if you guys heard her, but she said yeah. Uh, let's do it. Let's close the show out. Um, thanks so much for listening this week, guys. Uh, you know, Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Episode 179, Affordable Vintage Watches, Part 9, Pilot Watches. This is Kaz, and you have been listening to Two Broke Watch Snobs. Later.